You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. A reporter in 1739 in New York wrote in the New England Weekly Journal his first-hand account of a George Whitfield sermon. He had gone in the morning to hear him preach, and he left that sermon uh, impressed, but still, as he said, with scruples. But he came back Sunday night to hear him preach to another packed house. In fact, more people were in the Sunday evening service. And here's his firsthand account of that sermon on this Sunday night in 1739 in New York. He writes, Under this frame of mind, I went to hear him in the evening at the Presbyterian Church, where he expounded to above 2,000 people within and without doors. I never in my life saw so attentive an audience. Mr. Whitfield spoke as one having authority. All he said was demonstration, life, and power. The people's eyes and ears hung on his lips. They greedily devoured every word. I came home astonished. Every scruple had vanished. I never saw nor heard the like, and I said within myself, surely God is with this man of truth. He preached and expounded in this manner twice every day for four days, and this evening assemblies, they were continually increasing. On Sunday morning at eight o'clock, his congregation consisted of about 1,500 people, but at night several thousand came together to hear him, and the place being too straight for them, Many were forced to go away, and some, tis said, with tears, lamented their disappointment. Well, a report like this is the envy of every preacher. Most preachers might be content to experience it at least once in the course of their ministry, and yet, for over 30 years of itinerant ministry throughout England, often to Wales, 15 times to Scotland, Ireland twice, and seven trips to the American colonies, it became commonplace for the masses who heard Whitfield to react like this under his powerful preaching. Indeed, many consider Whitfield the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul. Well, Michael, we want to talk about George Whitfield tonight, but I got one opening question for you. How do we explain this? How do we explain the phenomenon that is George Whitfield? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, it's one that um, <clears throat> for the past probably 30 years has been kind of a, a, um, a debate going on among evangelical historians, how to, how, to, how to record this, how to respond to this. Uh, one school of thought would argue that um, there are human reasons that have to be brought forward. Um, you know, Whitfield's uh, command of the English language, Whitfield's 
you know, voice that could carry upwards of a quarter of a mile or more. Um, Whitfield's use of his body in the pulpit to do even history histrionics uh, to some degree. Um, uh, Harry Stout uh, penned a, a famous biography in recent years of Whitfield, one that was controversial, The Divine Dramatist. I didn't enjoy that book. I remember first reading that years ago, early 2000s, and I just thought he didn't give any credit at all to any kind of theological understanding of Whitfield's ministry. He he basically, and I could be wrong, you could remind me, but I, it sounded like he just thought he was a charlatan or an actor. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> yeah, he gives the impression, and he, he later uh, kind of retracted to some degree the impression that he gave in the book, which was that above all things, uh, Whitfield was an actor, that the real Whitfield was in the pulpit. Uh, the problem with that argument, I think, is the is Whitfield's diaries and letters. And people who knew Whitfield personally, there are, there are thousands of people who met Whitfield through the course of his life, and nobody ever thought he was a charlatan who knew him personally. But um, so there's, there is that argument of which, and actually Harry Stout is, is a... Is, um, Part of that way of of uh, response, part of that school of response, you know, there are human reasons why Whitfield had this impact. the The question is really then, though, is can we talk about God in history? Can we talk about God mm. doing this? Was was God the Holy Spirit involved? And I think for a professing Christian who takes seriously the biblical understanding and the biblical worldview of God's activity in history. I think at some point one has to say, yes, um, th this was God. And we, we know that because it confirm, confirms or conforms, that's the word I want, it conforms to the New Testament account of what conversion looks like and what the Christian life looks like. And as Whitfield preached, people were brought into the Christian life. They were born again uh, in conversion narratives that they would later write or were written about them that are basically biblical, and their lives were shaped by biblical biblical truth. And so I, I have no hesitation in, at some point, saying, okay, there are human factors to explain Whitfield, but that's not the only thing at work here. And, Michael, wouldn't you say, we, we can certainly say that as Christians, that we see, uh, you've, you've called it before, providential history. Yeah. We see God working in history, but also just as historians taking seriously a subject's own testimony to what has happened or other people's firsthand testimony of what's happening. So to to have this kind of hermeneutic of suspicion all over a man's ministry like Whitfield would have to discount, like you said, his journals, his letters, his the other things he he had written, and 34 years of public ministry with others that would testify in accordance with what he testified to himself. Yeah, I just think it's a very poor way of doing history. Um, some of it's personality, I suppose. Um, there are historians, maybe they've got personalities who are suspicious of everybody and everything. Um, when I read a, an account in history, um, my first instinct is not a hermeneutic of suspicion, namely, this isn't true, 
there's got to be another explanation. Um, usually what I'm trying to do is try to understand the account. What exactly is being said here? Why is the author saying what he's saying, given his own context? What does he mean by this account? And um, I, I'm a historian. I'm, I'm not first and foremost a theologian uh, asking the question, okay, so is this true or not? But I'm asking the question, um, what's going on here? How, you know, how can I understand this in the context? But at some point, you have to ask that question. So is this true? Uh, is this genuinely revival? Hmm. And um, I think I think it is. And the reason, as I said, I think it is, is because what we what we know of the Holy Spirit's work as it's sketched in the Bible um, is identical with what takes place in the 18th century. Well, speaking of the 18th century, Michael, maybe you uh, could sketch for us the context of Whitfield's ministry. Maybe a little bit of brief biography of Whitfield, but let's place him in what, is it accurate to say, historians call this evangelical awakening of the 1730s and 1740s, not only in England, uh, uh, throughout uh, England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and then of course in the American colonies. Maybe you could help us place Whitfield mm-hmm. in, all, in all of this. Yeah, so Whitfield's born... Um at the beginning, really, of the 18th century. He's born 1714. He dies in 1770. Um, he dies in America. He dies in Newburyport, just north of Boston. Um, and is buried there. He's buried in First Presbyterian. Uh, First under Pope. a pulpit, right? Yes, um, <laughs> under the pulpit, along with two other individuals, one of them, Jonathan Parsons, who was the pastor at the time when Whitfield was there. Um, I, could, I could actually... You and I went to Newburyport tomorrow. I can identify the house where he died. And uh, the window fronts the street. It's just around the corner from the church. So you've um, been there. You've walked. Oh, yeah. I've been there three or four times. You, yeah, yeah. So you've seen it firsthand. I, one, of the, well, one of the real funny stories, and then I'll go back and answer your question about the, the context. Sure. So I, the first time I went, I went with a, a pastor who's now gone on to be with the Lord. And he was really bold. And so he, he knew the house where Whitfield had uh, preached his last sermon. It's a famous story of him going up the landing and uh, people knock on the door and he, the door is opened and really they want a sermon. And he preaches as long as his candle has guttered out and they died that night of an asthmatic attack. And um, so this guy knew exactly the place. And we get there and the door's open and it's quite apparent that the ownership of the house has changed hands and there's a new owner moving in. So my friend and I hung back, I'm a, I'm an introvert and also raised in England and Canadian. So we tend to be on the quieter side. My friend was a, a new Englander. Um, and he goes up to the door and he says, um, uh, madam, I, I wonder if you're aware that this is the house in which uh, George Whitfield died. And we'd love to be able to see the room in which he, Passed away. <laughs> she has no idea who George Whitfield is. So I could tell no. she's immediately flustered. Uh, did that happen recently? She was very concerned that this had happened maybe a year or two before she bought the house. And maybe she was afraid of ghosts. Or who knows what she was afraid of. She was very upset that this might have happened in the very recent past. Oh, no, no, no. It happened in 1770, my friend said. Oh, oh she said, well, yeah, that's, that's distant history. And he began to try to press his, 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 his request. He said, can't 
you see I'm moving in? Like, I'm busy. Like, get out of here. <laughs> so, it, was, so, it was brilliant. <laughs> and that is it, so great. All, all of that exchange took about five or six minutes. But she went from being very upset about the passing of a man in her bedroom <laughs> to just complete anger at this Just rude annoyed pastor. you're there. Yeah, uh, trying to butt his way into the house. <laughs> oh. My friend, he was almost in the front doorstep. The door was open, and I'm sure, I'm sure there'd be nobody there to bar his entry. He would have been up the stairs into the bedroom. <laughs> anyway, no, you, you, you must be. I you must not have been. been. No, 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 no. I was aghast. I, I'm thinking, oh man. <laughs> what are we do? What are we doing? But well, it's he, a was great act, he was acting a lot like Whitfield. I mean, he, he was, was acting. Spirit. Oh yeah, yeah. He's much more kindred to Whitfield than I am. <laughs> well, anyway, it seems appropriate. So Whitfield's born in 1714. He's born in England in Gloucester, uh, which is quite near the Welsh border. And his um, his father died as a very young age, when he was two or three. And so he's raised by his mom. Has an older brother who would inherit the. Uh, the household business, which is the, a public inn, a public house, a pub and and uh, rooms to stay in. And during his teen years, early teen years, he had left school, and that's where he was working. And but his mother had great plans for him. She 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 saw something in George. His school didn't. Uh, his school teachers only remembered him for being an actor. They didn't remember him in any excelling in any scholastic area. And so she had, she had saved money up for him to go to Oxford. And in those days, there were two types of students at Oxford and Cambridge, the two universities in England. Um, students who were wealthy enough to go there and pay their, to, you know, pay their way. And those who, had to, who could pay an initial a down payment to get in and then had to work their way through college. So in, um, in Oxford, you were known as a servitor. Um, and he, Whitfield was basically the servant to a wealthy noble, the son of a wealthy nobleman. And um, he'd have to be up at like three in the morning, get the guy's breakfast ready, iron his clothes, polish his shoes, serve him breakfast, clean up. And then he'd have some free time for classes or study. The same would have to be done at noon when dinner was served. And then in the evening when supper was served. Um, but Whitfield was an Arduous student, assiduous. Um, he makes the acquaintance of two young men who have a like passion for Christianity, as he did, um, uh, the Wesley brothers. And Charles Wesley, in the mid-1720s, had founded a group called the Holy Club. Uh, they didn't call it that. Everyone else did it in mocking tones. And Whitfield joins that group. He's the last to join. He's the first to be converted. Uh, it's a, about a dozen serious young men who, unlike most in their age, it's a, uh, as they use a, a great 17th century term, it's a giddy age with young men who are overcome by their passions, their appetites. And very few were the men like these 12 who wanted to serve God and know God. And, but they're going about it the whole wrong way. They're going about it the way Luther did. They're, they're trying to work their way to heaven and work their way to God's favor, you know, fasting and praying and Preaching, uh, because the, the two Wesleys are ordained, um, and this is 1732. And um, 
within four years, three years actually, in the Easter of 1735, Whitfield is converted in Oxford. Um, he comes to faith in Christ, probably um, on a street. Uh, I get the impression he does. He, he says, uh, later he says, I, I know the very place in Oxford uh, where I, I, I entered into a saving union with Christ. And uh, whenever I'm there, I, I run to the place. And I, I get the impression it wasn't uh, a student dorms, but it was somewhere in a street, maybe one of the back alleys, of which there are numerous in central Oxford. And what was the catalyst for it? Was, was somebody preaching? Was he reading something? Was he reading the word? What does he attribute his conversion to? Um, a book that Charles Wesley gave him. He, he remembers this in 1769, one of the last sermons he ever preaches in England. Um, he says, it was a book that Charles Wesley gave me. Uh, the Life of God in the Soul of Man by um, Schugel. Schugel, the oh. Scottish Puritan. Okay. And he said I did, that not, it, I did was, not know that. It was that book that showed me that I was a Pharisee. I was not in Christ. I did not have a saving union with Christ. And that pushed him to seek such, and he found such in the spring of 1735. Within a year, he's preaching, ordained a deacon in the Anglican Church. Um, he meets a Welshman because pulpits start to get closed to him. He, he's preaching the new birth. He must be born again. And uh, one of the great morning stars of the Welsh awakening at this time is Griffith Jones from Clandaura. And uh, he tells him, why don't you go preach in the open air? They shut the doors to you, preach outside. And uh, during the previous century, dissenters had done this. And he goes down to Bristol. And um, he preaches at a place where Baptists had preached in the 1670s, 1680s, during the days of persecution by the state church. And if you go to there now, and I've been there, it's in the middle of a housing estate. There's a pulpit set up on a small little hill uh, of grass and a, a, a plaque that says it was here in February of 1737, I think it is, that Whitfield began to preach in the open air. And uh, 200 miners, colliers, came to hear him preach. And he said within weeks there were thousands of them hearing him preach and converted. He said you could tell that God was at work in their lives because you'd see these, because many of them didn't wash. They had the coal, the uh, coal dust was baked into their skin. They were, they were black uh, in skin color, uh, not because that was their melon count, but because that was their their occupation, and they were filthy, filthy, filthy men uh, and women in terms of their in terms of their their physical appearance, in terms of their smell, in terms of their lives. Many of these men spent their weekends in things like bestiality and drunken brawls and gambling and vicious fighting. and And Whitfield says God saved hundreds and hundreds of them. Here's Whitfield going to a, a people that will maybe never darken. The doors of a church or wood, but but not with any real intention of listening to a sermon. And he's going to them. He's taking the gospel uh, to to these people, really on their way to the coal mines. Right? He'd be up at four o'clock, spend an hour mm -hmm. with the Lord. Yep. Then five a.m. He's preaching to this, could we say, captive audience mm -hmm. on their way to work. Yep. Yeah, and also the the other thing, I, it never struck me how remarkable this is until this past couple of years about the pandemic. And as I began to look at, uh, you know, pandemics in British history, uh, waves of the pandemic, the, the last waves of the bubonic plague to really afflict the British Isles 
were in the 1660s. There had been about four waves that century. But the idea of the plague so burned itself into the English consciousness that places where the plague had been commonest, namely among the poor, the wealthy in London, for example, or many of these large cities, these urban centers, could flee the plague. They could go to their housing estate, their houses outside in the country. You know, they'd often have a house in the city and a house in the country. The poor couldn't. And the poor came to be the bodies of the poor and the places where the poor lived, like these colliers, came to be set placed, regarded as centers of disease. And that was in the mindset. There, were, there, were, there was no pandemic or epidemic going on in these days. But that was, except maybe things like smallpox, but that was in the mindset of many of the, the upper class and the world that Whit Whitfield came from. There is enormous courage of Whitfield, just not only the fact that he might be brutally attacked by these people, but even the very fact that these, these people, in the, in the minds of many of the upper class, their bodies were bearers of disease. And yet Whitfield went among them. And he spoke. Didn't him. Yeah. No, he spoke of the love of God, and um, I think what was compelling was that as he preached about the love of God, they actually saw the love of God in action. Because here was a man who brought that message to them. They knew where he was coming from. He's, he's upper. Well, he's upper. He's middle class. He's not upper class. He's, he's he never re, he never lost his accent, his West Country accent. So he'd say a word like Christ. He'd say Christ. He had that kind of a, a typical West Country accent would lengthen the, the vowels. So they would know he's not upper class in his accent, but he certainly was educated at Oxford. Mm -hmm. And yet here he is bearing a, a message of love, the very act of bearing the message is itself love. Paul, Paul talked yeah. about this, I think, in Galate, uh, for two, 1 Corinthians 2. We preach Christ crucified, but in the context as he talks about that, it's quite clear that the preacher will go through the experience of weakness. And not only, Michael, going, to, I mean, love displayed in, in the going to this people group, but also my understanding is that Whitfield, his whole, he preached with his whole body, as, yep. as Lloyd-Jones later would talk about, a preacher preaches with his whole body. And he was very affected by his messages, wasn't he? I, I mean, he he could weep, he could be earnest. Uh, his nonverbals were communicating the love of Christ, the the uh, the urgency of belief that must be born again. I mean, the central doctrine, perhaps uh, it's hard to say central, but one of the main doctrines to his preaching: regeneration, as you mentioned earlier. But they would see him be visibly affected by the message, his love for Christ, love for people. Yeah, the um, 18th century preachers not infrequently wept over their audiences. Uh, this changes in the 19th century. There is a definite change in the 19th century about public weeping, men publicly weeping. And the Victorians develop a concept of masculinity, which I don't think is helpful. It's this kind of muscular Christianity in which real men don't weep, and they and that they have wasn't a Whitfield, yeah, that's yeah. not Whitfield, and they have a problem explaining Jesus, the shortest verse of the Bible, right? Jesus wept. That's right. That's right. 
Michael, can you confirm if this is um, fact or fiction, stuff of legend? You you just I love the way you can use your voice and actually talk like uh, like Whitfield did. You know the region of the country he came from, and his. But there's a story that people would swoon under his pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. Do you know that story? Have yeah, you heard yeah. something of that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, just the the way he could speak. The great the great Shakespearean actor Garrick um, would uh, at one point he said in public hearing, uh, only I could say the word Mesopotamia the way, the way George Whitfield says it. You know, Garrick was the you know the um, Kenneth Branagh of the 18th century. He was the great Shakespearean actor and. Um, he would go. He would go and hear Whitfield preach because um, one of the things that he uh, wanted to hear was how how did, how did Whitfield have such command over his audiences? He he thought he could pick up acting tips, and Whit Whitfield was an actor. He hmm. he he used his body. Um, as I said, he was remembered as a as a skilled actor. I mean, he's a lot more than that. So Harry Stout's Divine Dramatist, which we talked about a little earlier. Mm -hmm. It has one thing. I mean, Whitfield is, he's using the skill of an actor in the, in the pulpit, whatever that pulpit might be, you know, uh, under a tree, mm -hmm. uh, in a graveyard, on a ship, wherever, wherever he got an audience. But he's using his whole body. He's, he's trying to communicate with the entirety of his being, the reality of his message. But he's, he, he's not an actor in the sense that he's putting on something that he doesn't feel. He feels this to the depths of his being. And his whole body's expressing that. It's one thing to say someone is dramatic in the pulpit. It's another thing to say he's an actor. Yeah. Right. He is. Yeah. That, maybe yeah. that's, that's a good way of putting it. He is very dramatic in the pulpit. He's like Billy sure. Sunday, you know, in the 20th century, <laughs> who was dramatic in the pulpit. But Whitfield meant every word. He, he would look on the vast crowds of men and women who came for who knows how, what reasons. Some of them came because uh, there was nothing to do in entertainment some, in, that, in that world. Some of them came to pick pockets. They were thieves. Some women of the night came as, as they might find gentlemen who, who would want their services. Who knows why they came? Uh, Robert yeah, Robinson. Of mere, mere Mere curiosity, like the reporter we opened with. He just yep. he wanted to report on this phenomenon that he had been hearing about. Ends up getting yep. converted in the process. <laughs> yeah, Robert Robinson came because he, he said, I needed a fund of stories to tell my grandchildren. He, he'd, he'd gone that Sunday morning uh, before he heard Whitfield in the evening. He'd gone with some friends to a, a fortune teller and got her drunk, stone drunk on gin. And she told their fortune. And she said to Robert Robinson, I see you're, you're going to have children and great-grandchildren and great-children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And you'll live to an old age. So he's going home thinking, well, you know, if that's true, and well, well I, I, need, I need stories to make sure they come in round and they'll keep me when I'm old. There's no, there's no safety security net or social security net. So where, where, where did I start? Ah, he'd seen a poster for a Whitfield sermon, uh, preaching a venue. I'll go there. And he's listening to Whitfield preach on that passage in Matthew, Oh, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And he's laughing. He's, he's looking at people weeping, collapsing, physically collapsing under the stress of just 
The idea that God would be sending them to hell if they were not in Christ. And he's laughing inwardly at them. They're stupid fools. And then he says, at one point, though, Whitfield lifted up his hands and said, My friends, my friends, the wrath of God is coming. And he said, those words sank into my heart like stone into waters. And he wrestled under deep conviction of sin for two years before he found Christ. Incredible. And Whitfield, Whitfield will look out on this, this vast audience. So we, we, we've got credible accounts of anywhere between five, upwards of 15,000. And he, just a sea of humanity. And he'd say, sometimes I'd look and I didn't feel I had a word to say to them. And he'd weep over their souls. And I, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, the, the divine dramatist, I remember reading the book in the 90s, and I, I wrestled with it, under, you know, because it really didn't capture the man. I agree. Uh, I don't think so either. Well, Michael, we haven't even begun to capture the man, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say we need to take up Whitfield Part 2 next week. There's a number of things we do need to address. I mean, we've talked a lot about Whitfield's preaching the massive crowds that have come and, and his earnestness for the souls of the lost. But there's other issues we want to talk about. We, uh, in our contemporary culture, our, our unique time, everybody's looking at uh, you know, figures in history that were involved with slavery in one form or another. We got to be honest and say Whitfield Edwards and others in the 18th century were a part of this institution. And I think uh, next week we can at least take that up as well would you be willing to do yeah, that i think that yeah i think that's uh, that's a great i think it's a great idea and i i agree with you fully um one of the challenges for the contemporary reader of whitfield who's alert to social issues is the fact that whitfield was involved in uh the practice of tr practice of slavery and um so how then do we view this man who was signally used by god without a doubt the greatest evangelist in many ways of the of the 18th century but was involved in what his co-evangelist and friend regarded as a vile abomination before a holy God. That's John Wesley. So, That's right. And and that'll be a good opportunity to also talk about their relationship in a little more detail. So not just yeah. the slavery issue, but uh, they weren't always seeing eye to eye. And there's a doctrine at the heart of that called election that'll be good to talk about. So, Michael, I'll look forward to that with you next week. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.